So the most important point I take from this passage is the phrase that comes, listen to him. And the reason I say that one is probably the most important, or at least it's certainly a very important aspect of this text, is because it comes at the, the kind of the high point of this story. When the disciples are on the mountain, they hear the voice from heaven, and it says, listen to them. And then they open their eyes and they see Jesus. And the other reason why I think this is a key for this passage is because we've heard most of this phrase before when Jesus was baptized, right? You remember that the voice from heaven spoke and Jesus said, or God said from heaven, this is my son and I love him very much and I'm well pleased with him. But now this time the voice adds a new phrase, listen to him. And so when the disciples look up, they see that Jesus is the only one left for them to listen to. Well, what does it mean to listen to Jesus? We're going to start by, first of all, just looking at some of the connections with this story to the bigger picture, which is always helpful when we're looking in the scriptures. How do we hear, how do we listen to this story? We do it by listening to the other things that have come before it in the scriptures. And of course, we're not going to hit all of those, but we're going to hit a couple of the main connections with this particular passage. So Matthew says in chapter 17, verse 1, after six days, Jesus led them up on the mountain. So this little phrase, after six days, helps us to remember some things from the Old Testament to prepare for a holy event. So God created the earth, the heaven and the earth, in six days. And on the seventh day, it was a holy day. It was a special day. He rested from those works and he got on with the rest of the normal creation activities. And then when Moses was up on the mountain waiting for the law, such a central aspect of the Jewish tradition, he waited for six days in the presence of the Lord. And then he got the revelation of the law. So we're prepared right away by Matthew that something big is going to happen in this text. And in fact, something really big does happen. Jesus' face, his clothes, he's shining so radiantly, it's even more obvious, his divinity, that he is God, than after the resurrection. Remember when Jesus rose up from the grave, people didn't even recognize him right away. He seemed to them like another human being at first. But here, his divinity comes shining through it's the voice of God that they're seeing. So then, another clue that we get from the Old Testament is this connection with the mountain. You can put that slide up about Mount Hermon. We don't know which mountain they went up. It was a very high mountain. And mountains were kind of a connection point between earth, between human beings, and, and, and God. So going up on a high place was a natural place to meet at the boundary between God and humanity. That's not too hard for us to imagine. It's still true in many ideas today. Buddhists often put their temples up in high places. Sometimes Hindus do that too. And we remember from the Old Testament that many times uh, something from a revelation from God happens on a mountain. So Matthew makes that connection. Matthew loves to draw things from the Old Testament to show who Jesus is. And several times in Matthew's Gospel, he makes connections with mountains. So Jesus is tempted in chapter 4 
by Satan up on a mountain, and he resists the devil there. And then in chapter 5, he gets up in front of his disciples on a mountain. He teaches the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7. And at that time, he also says, I'm not going to overthrow the law and the prophets. I'm going to fulfill the law and the prophets up on the mountain. Then in chapter 15, a couple chapters before the one that we read, Jesus is again on the mountain. He's doing many miracles, and he feeds thousands of people on the mountain. Then we have chapter 17, where they're up on the mountain. And then at the end, the very end of Matthew's gospel, when again, it's a huge moment because it's the last thing that Jesus is saying before he ascends into heaven. He's again on a mountain, and he says to his disciples, teach everything that I've commanded you and make more disciples. So the mountain is, is a clue that something big is going on. We also see that there are two key figures from the verses today that have mountaintop experiences with God, Moses and Elijah. So Moses, as we mentioned, he had this close connection with God or this experience with God on Mount Sinai. In chapters 19 and 34 of Exodus, God reveals his name to Moses, who he is. And Moses comes to represent the tradition of the law from the Old Testament. So when we hear Moses in the New Testament, many times it is a reference not just to the person, but to the law, the books of the law. And so Moses comes down from this experience, and his face is glowing. He's shining. He's reflecting the glory of God. But in the passage that we just read, Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God, but he is revealing the very glory of God. It's not just an experience that Jesus had like Moses, but he is reflecting the glory of God himself as bright as the sun. Elijah also in 1 Kings chapter 19 goes up to Mount Horeb and he hears God's voice. So like Moses, Elijah comes to represent a tradition of the Old Testament also. He represents the prophets. Sometimes Isaiah also serves that function to represent all the prophets. But in this case, it's Elijah. He's kind of uh, the main first prophet in many ways after Moses. And he comes to interpret the law. Moses gives the law. The prophets come to interpret the law for different times and circumstances for the people of God. So Moses and Elijah are together with Jesus up on the mountain, representing the law and the prophets, which testify to Jesus. There he is in the company of the testimony of the Old Testament of the Jewish tradition, and they're testifying to the presence of Jesus. So this is probably also why, uh, this prophecy is probably also why Jesus calls John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, Elijah. Because in the line of prophets, John the Baptist is the last one. He has the job to say, here he is, right here, right in front of us. This is the guy, Jesus. He's the one who all of us have been searching for. So he represents Elijah. So the Father reveals very clearly that Jesus is not just another prophet, but he is the prophet. Maybe you remember, uh, when I, if you were here when I preached on Jeremiah, I passed over this text also, but it's very applicable here too. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. And here Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me 
He will be one of your own people, and you must listen to him. So here Matthew is showing us, this is the guy. This is the one. This is the one who is chosen, and you must listen to this one. He's going to speak in the name of the Father. So we could go into some of the other details of this text. We'll leave some of those for your own study later on, your own reflection, like the cloud and how much the cloud represented from the Old Testament. And now again, the cloud is representing the presence of God. And we see it, the voice is speaking from out of the cloud. But what happens on the mountain is that God is revealing himself to Moses and to Eli The God who revealed himself to Moses and to Elijah through all the law and the prophets is now revealing himself to the disciples and revealing himself to us. And so through that experience of the blinding light, God is inviting us to follow the one whose words are truth and life. Listen to him. But the whole experience, as you might imagine, was probably quite, we say in English, a roller coaster ride, up and down, up and down. First, Peter, James, and John were selected to go up on the mountain, which probably made them feel quite special. They were alone with Jesus on this mountain. And Luke tells us that they were praying. Jesus was praying when all of this happened. So then they see the bright lights, and they think, what should we do? They don't know what to say. And Peter says, let's stay here. I'll, I'll make some booths. I'll make some tents or some kind of shelters for us to stay up here. He doesn't know what's going on, but he's excited. But even before he speaks, there's a voice that comes in this cloud that says, this is my son whom I love. I'm very pleased with him. Listen to him. And the disciples are moving from this high to this complete down on their faces in fear. They don't know what to do again for different reasons. And then when they're down on the ground with their faces in the dirt, Jesus comes over to them, and he touches them. And he says, rise up. Don't be afraid. And they look up, and they don't see anybody except Jesus. I think this is one of those texts where the transcendence, we say in, in theology and in English, the, the distance of God, the, 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 he's so far away, he's so impossible to reach, and yet, at the same time, the eminence of God, his closeness, he's so close to us, both of those things are brought together in this text. There's this cloud, this voice from heaven that's shaking the disciples' very nerves. They're down on the ground. And then the closeness of Jesus, their teacher, who comes to them, touches them, and raises them up and says, don't be afraid. One commentator says that <clears throat> it's probably best to translate the Greek here don't be afraid anymore. Don't be afraid anymore because of the tense of the Greek. From now on, for the rest of your ministry, don't be afraid. Get up and serve me. Listen to me. Listen to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Already we've focused on Jesus being the prophet. There's a couple of more things from this text that we might recognize teaching us who this Jesus is. So there's many titles in the New Testament for Jesus. But there's two that are focusing in this particular text. And the first one is that Jesus is the Son of Man. And the second one is that He is the Son of God. 
So the Son of Man is again from the Old Testament. It's used in different ways. In Ezekiel, it means somebody who's a human being, just like you and me. But in Daniel chapter 7, Son of Man is somebody who's high, who's exalted, who has authority, and whose kingdom lasts forever and is worshipped as God. And so we find in the in the New Testament that Jesus likes to use this term for himself. At first he's only saying in some ways, I am a man, I'm a human being, I'm representing human beings. But in the end, he interprets that for us, especially when he's standing before the Jews being accused, he finds out that, or he, he shows us that what he meant was, and we're supposed to find out that he is also the exalted son of man. He's the one who's high and is in fact God. So in this passage, we see in chapter 16, remember just right before the passage we read, that he calls himself the Son of Man, and he makes a prediction where he's going to suffer and die as a human being. The Son of Man will suffer and will die. But the third day he will rise again, and he will return in his glory. So here we have a glimpse of his glory. He shows the disciples a little flash of his divinity. I encourage you to study the title, The Son of Man, a little bit more on your own. Perhaps this afternoon, look up some of the references for that title. The other one is the Son of God. So Jesus, um, Peter, sorry, says to Jesus, Lord, he calls him Lord, that's another title, but the one that is really focused on here is the Son of God. In chapter 16, just before this text, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And now again, the voice from heaven reveals that he is God's Son. This is my Son. It's interesting that at the end of Matthew's Gospel, he Jesus never actually st stands up and says, I am God's son in that direct way. But we see that that is exactly what he is saying in so many different ways through the Gospels. And the end of Matthew, when he's standing before the Jews, they say he has to be killed because he said, I am God's son. That's the reason he's on trial. And when he dies in chapter 17, uh, 27, then there's an earthquake and there's miracles. People are rising up from the grave. And the guard who was standing there watching says, surely this was the Son of God. What have we done? Who is this guy? So Jesus is not just another important prophet like Moses and Elijah. Peter's comments, though, maybe we should stay here. I can build some uh, shelters for us. Peter probably still had a little bit of what you could call a, G, a Jesus II theology. Jesus also theology. And Jesus II theology is when people think of Jesus as somebody who was a great teacher. He was a great prophet, maybe even one of the greatest prophets, but not as the eternal Son of God. And this was something that they had to very clearly understand what God was revealing, that Jesus is not just one of the prophets. So Peter saw the three of them. They all seemed to be important. And his own rabbi, his own teacher, his face was glowing. It was great to be here. I'll make three different places for you to stay. But they have to understand that Jesus alone will be, sta will be there standing before them when they open their eyes. 
So Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills Moses and Elijah. He fulfills the prophets. But nobody fulfills Jesus. Nobody fulfills Jesus. He is who we are to listen to. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, says, um, 1, verse 1, says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. He spoke at many times. He spoke in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. He is the one whom God appointed to receive all things. God also made everything through him. The Son is the shining brightness of God's glory. He is the exact likeness of God's being. So when we look up, who should we listen to? Who should we see? This is where we often do go wrong, where people often go wrong, because we may think that we're worshiping Jesus, but many times what in reality we're doing is we're elevating our church leaders or certain people who we think really get it right. They really know how to teach or they really are such a, a, a great teacher or a great church or whatever the case is. And we take the focus off of Jesus. And what happens when those people fall? What happens when they mess up? What happens when they're immature? Our faith also crumbles because we're looking at the wrong person. We're looking at the wrong being. We're not looking at Jesus. And we're looking at human beings. So Peter was probably somebody that we shouldn't be following yet. You know, many times we follow people who are in a stage where Peter was at this time. Peter was a believer. He was following Jesus, but he wasn't yet mature. He still needed to be sifted like wheat. He still needed to be humbled by three denials before his Lord. And later on, we come to read his two letters in the New Testament, First and Second Peter, and we find a very mature Peter there. We find somebody who knows suffering and glory go together. You can't skip the cross. Peter was ready to fight for Jesus. In chapter 16, he said, no, you're never going to go to the cross. I'll help you. And even though Jesus rebuked him later at the end, he pulled out his sword. He was ready to fight for Jesus. He didn't understand that the cross was a part of the trip. So if we follow people who are not yet perfect, who are not yet mature, even if they are mature, we get it wrong. We have to focus on Jesus and listen to him alone. Of course, that doesn't mean that you can go hide by yourself. Remember that the body of Jesus, the body of Christ, is the church. And Jesus is still working on purifying the church. So this passage, this kind of, I guess you could say, very triumphant passage where we see a glimpse, a little picture of Jesus' divinity, stands between these two predictions, these two times when Jesus talks about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. In chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus predicts to the disciples, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. After that, he's going to come in glory, but he must suffer many things. And then again, after this passage, in chapter 17, or part of this passage right at the end, chapter 17, verse 12, the Son of Man must suffer many things. 
before he comes in his glory. So when, when God says from heaven, listen to him, what this context, what this place is focusing on, that we have to listen to a willingness to go to the cross, to suffer with Jesus along the way. And at the same time, we have that hope and that, re- that recollection, that vision that the disciples saw of Jesus' face shining like the sun, and he's bringing us into his glory. He's promising that we're going to share in his glory. So in this life, we always have those two things, suffering and glory, go together. Lent, which is going to be starting this week, the season of Lent, is always before us, as well as the resurrection. So let's think about a few ways that we can listen to him during the Lenten season in the midst of our sufferings. Lent, I guess, comes from an old English word that sounds kind of like LinkedIn, not LinkedIn on the uh, computer, but um, I didn't know that before. I learned that while I was preparing for the sermon, and it means to lengthen the days. So right now, as we go into the spring, every day is getting longer and longer, and Lent is that season when the days are getting longer, adding up to the longest day of the year. And so Lent begins on this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, and it goes for 40 days. In the church, traditionally, sometimes this has been a period where people prepare for baptism. That might be something good for some of us here, to use this as a specific time to prepare for our baptism. And we also use this time to reflect on our brokenness, the brokenness of our world, and what Jesus has done for us through his death and his resurrection by taking upon himself that suffering, that brokenness. And after we do that, we again celebrate at the Easter time. So here's a couple of suggestions. These are just suggestions for ways that we might listen this Lent. So one way is, I would call it um, a slow burn method. So during the season of Lent, take some time to search your heart, ask the Holy Spirit, Ask the Lord to show you what are the ways in which, or one way in particular, that I can grow in my character this coming year. And at the end of Lent, around Easter time, you can start to implement seeking to grow in that particular character quality. Maybe you want to do uh, something like gentleness or a fruit of the Spirit, asking the Lord to work that in you. Maybe you want to focus on a discipline like prayer or evangelism but whatever the Lord leads you to. And then ask your friends or maybe a family member to help you. Say, I'm going to work on this by the help of the Holy Spirit for the coming year, and I want you to know about it so you can hold me accountable. And then uh, every day, perhaps, or every week, take some time to reflect. Where did I grow? How did I engage that likeness of Christ? How did I fail? And why? And ask the Lord to help you to grow in that character quality during the year. I've done this for a few years, and I find it to be really helpful because life is scattered, and you can't just do it in one week or one month even because that's like a fad diet. You know, they don't work. Oh, I dropped 20 pounds. Big deal, you know? You're going to get it right back. The same thing is true when we try to work on patience in one week or one month. But through the course of a year, you have many circumstances, you have many situations that will 
try you in a different area and you'll have the opportunity to grow and to reflect on those. Then during Lent next year, reflect on the whole year. How did you grow? How, did you, how do you still need to grow in that area? And choose something else to grow in in the coming year. Another way that we can listen perhaps together at Church of the Servant is uh, through the spirit, take a spiritual director, like Pastor Andrews talked a few times about having a spiritual director, somebody that, that you know and can also be familiar with where you are in your walk and test you in different things. And there's a spiritual direction gr uh, group that's starting. It's a great time to get together and listen together because where two or three are gathered, there I am also. And as you sit together, you'll find that many times when you seek to pray about a particular thing or for somebody for insight, you find that again and again, there's a testimony of how a theme works through that group that you all find together. One other suggestion is that uh, of the, care, the uh, creation care team is suggesting for Lent this year that we seek ways to fast from plastics. And they are also suggesting that we uh, read through a book. I think it's still out in the, in the um, you know, what do you call that thing? That big room by the cafe, yeah. I wanted to say narthex, but nobody knows what that is. So it's over by the cafe. That might be one way. That's a book about how different species are becoming extinct. And so we can listen along with the heart of God as we pray for many of these creatures that we're losing uh, as a result of human activities in the world. And then there's the other one about the plastics. And um, when thinking about this text, it kind of struck me as strange that Jesus was transfigured. His face changed, you know, when he was on the mountain. And we're changing the appearance of the earth through mountains of plastic. So this, this is just a, a few pictures of plastics that come from water bottles. We're not talking about all the different kind of plastics that we use, but this is just from water bottles. So every hour, you know, and that's the big statue in Brazil, we're talking about around the world, this is how many water bottles we consume every hour. You can go to the next slide there. Every day. 1.3 billion bottles of water. One month, 40 billion, burying the Eiffel Tower. Keep going. And in a full year, the tallest building in the world, that's what it looks like, just from water bottles, if we put them all in the same place. Go to the, to the last one. So the past 10 years, now do I have... Uh, says the plastic bottles sold worldwide since 2009 would cover the tower above New York's Manhattan Island. And why don't we just go ahead to the picture? I won't read all the stuff here, but... So this is... You can't see it very clearly, but that's the city there in New York, right? Just being completely buried by, by water bottles, plastic water bottles. So we're swimming in this plastic, and uh, what the creation care team is suggesting that we spend some time trying to fast from different kinds of plastic because it's just everywhere in our lives. And as we do that, we can listen to God. We can see the brokenness. I mean, just try to get away from it. You can't. It's everywhere. Everything we buy has plastic. And so this is an opportunity to think about how, um, you know, when we're thinking about our brokenness leading to glory, how much we need Jesus' resurrection to bring us out of this big mess.
So Jesus' transfiguration, um, it doesn't give us all the answers. We see this shining brightness of his face. We see in the midst of our suffering that there is glory on the way. Glory is coming. Glory comes with the resurrection. And we have tremendous hope. So we don't get all the answers, but we do get meaning. We do get purpose. We know that God is with us, that Jesus is divine, that he, the teacher, is bringing us along the way, and we're not on our own. And so I ask you this morning, if you're not a part of the body of Christ, if you don't have meaning in your life, that you would join this purpose, that you would join this meaning by following Christ, that you would surrender your heart to him. Perhaps it's time for you to seek baptism. Maybe it's time for you to seek a new commitment to follow the Lord in a particular way. And I think all of us always need to be reminded that we don't like suffering, but it's a part of the process. We will experience suffering, but we don't do just suffering. We suffer in the face of the shining Christ who's bringing us to the resurrection. Amen.